Friday night, and uh, boy, do I have a dirty show for you. I, that is the weirdest thing you can start a show with, but I have to be honest, it's really true. We have been working all week on the breaking news that, like, the court in Manhattan has been throwing our way, or shall I say vomiting our way, because it's all Epstein stuff. Not just the names, right? Like, the names were the first thing, the little black book. All that stuff was, whoa, big name, whoa, big name, whoa. Now it's the other gross, awful stuff. There's some names, too, and tonight I'm just going to give you a bunch of new stuff that I came across. Some of it, like, so disturbing, I had to take a deep breath and decide how I was going to bring it to you because it's, like, really upsetting. And I get sick and tired of doing, like, the um, disclaimers, but I'm just going to do it. Disclaimer, there's something that's going to involve a 15-year-old girl. 15 guys in his 60s. Um, and it's really sad because I think it meant, uh, when you hear me tell you about it, I think drugs are involved. I think she was drugged to a point where she had no idea where she was and she was being flown around. 15. Speaking of flown around, you know those pictures you keep seeing? That Lolita Express. That, put those pictures back up for a second. We just popped them up. That uh, jet, the Lolita Express, which I guess at other days was super luxurious and fancy for the rich and famous, we got inside. And we're going to take you in there to see some of the photographs because it ain't fancy anymore. It's actually uh, full of mold and mildew and sick memories. And the man who shot the pictures is going to join me live to say what kind of vibe he got while he was, I don't know, maybe even wearing a mask while inside that plane. That's coming up. And then I have this rock star drama um, involving Cher. I mean, I don't think of like courtroom battles when I think of Cher. I think of like everything awesome. However, she is kind of in a weird war with her son, Elijah Blue. As a mom, she's desperate to save his life because he's had this storied battle with drugs and alcohol. And um, she wants like a, a Britney kind of conservatorship, right? So she goes to court and this crazy thing happened in court this morning. It's a total Perry Mason moment. Doors open. In comes Elijah Blue. And I will tell you about the condition he was in and what the judge said about it. That's all coming up in just a moment. And then, oh boy, this was the most anticipated Casey Anthony documentary. A&E um, &E did a really smart thing. They asked George and Cindy Anthony, Casey Anthony's parents, if they would be willing to put their money where their mouth was and take a lie detector test about all the lies that, uh, well, all the things that people have said they've been lying about. Meaning, do you know more about little baby Kaylee's death and whereabouts uh, than you've ever let on? Well, let me just give you a little teaser. Take a look at this piece of tape. I asked you the same questions multiple times during the examination, George. Yes. The results of that examination, George, are... That's what you call a tease in this business. Um, the results are incredible. Honestly, they're just incredible. I had, I like gasped, <laughs> exhaled, and I'm going to bring you all the results as well as the man who performed the tests because we talked to him before and now we're talking to him after and he's got his opinions about the whole thing too. Okay, all that is coming. So you don't go anywhere. Get your milk and whatever else you drink before bed and stick around. I'm going to begin tonight with, like, more dirt. And when I say dirt, I mean slime from a world that, thank God, doesn't exist any longer. It is the world of Jeffrey Epstein. Vomit in my mouth when I say the words. If you thought that we were inundated in the past two nights with the suddenly unsealed court documents that have dumped out to the tune of 1,400 pages, today's dump was the biggest so far. 
No, it was 1,700 pages just today. <laughs> so we're talking about thousands of pages all week, and it's all never before seen. And the reading is kind of really upsetting. It's disquieting, it's jaw-dropping, and it's gross. Most of the famous names that jump out from the thousands of pages of affidavits and depositions, um, we kind of knew many of them were already associated with Epstein. And some may never have had the slightest idea who it was they were socializing with in terms of how ugly he was. They may not have known the monster they were doing business with, that he was a pedophile sex trafficker of epic proportions. These people may have had no idea, probably didn't actually, de decades before uh, it all came out. But even after everything we already knew, the stories that are coming out in these documents, they're alarming. I'm gonna start with this like extremely disturbing deposition. It's from a guy named Rinaldo Rizzo, and he is the private chef for Glenn Dubin. And Glenn was a, an investor, was really close ties. Glenn and his wife were very close to Epstein. And the documents describe Chef Rizzo as being in tears as he describes what a 15-year-old girl at Epstein's home told him. He is first asked uh, in the deposition to describe the girl, and this is what he says about her. Answer, very attractive, beautiful young girl. Makeup, very put together, casual dress, but she seemed to be upset, maybe like distraught. And she was shaking as she sat down and sat in the stool exactly the way the girls that I mentioned to you sat at Jeffrey's house with no expression and with their head down. But we could tell that she was very nervous. The lawyer asks, uh, what do you mean by distraught and shaking? What do you mean by that? And the answer is shaking. I mean literally quivering. And later in the deposition, Chef Rizzo, again, chef of Friends of Epstein, um, says this. She proceeds to tell my wife and I that, and this is not, this is blurting out, not a conversation like I'm having a casual conversation, that quickly, like, I was on an island. I was on the island. And there was Ghislaine. And there was Sarah. She said, they asked me for sex. And I said, no. And she's just rambling. And I'm like, I'm like, what? And she said, I asked her, I said, what? And she says, Yes, I was on the island. I don't know how I got from the island to here. Last afternoon or in the afternoon, I was on the island and now I'm here. And I said, do you have a, and this is not making any sense to me. And I said, this is nuts. Do you have a passport? Do you have a phone? And she says, no. She says, Ghislaine took my passport. And I said, what? And she says, Sarah took her passport and her phone and gave it to Glenn Maxwell. And at that point, she said that she was threatened. It's a 15-year-old kid. Now, I got to be clear on the Sarah business because it's widely assumed that the person who's referred to as Sarah is Sarah Kellen. Sarah Kellen is Jeffrey Epstein's former assistant, very much still alive, and a woman that many have claimed scheduled and arranged a whole bunch of the sexual abuse that went on in Epstein's various homes. Uh, at this point, she may have some criminal litigation ahead, uh, has kept a very low profile up until now. So now this next deposition, it's from Epstein's former butler. His name is Alberto Rodriguez, and he claims um, that he had to carry around like huge sums of cash at all times in order to pay young girls. So the lawyer, Brad Edwards, that's the lawyer for one of the victims, he uh, asks, okay, you've talked about, at least referred to yourself, I believe, to the police and as well as today, as a human ATM machine, right? Nick, opposing counsel goes, objection. Uh, and the butler says something like that. I was supposed to carry cash at all times. And then the lawyer uh, asks, 
One of the primary reasons why you carried cash was to pay the girls in this age group of C and T, those are redacted names, for whatever happened at the house, right? And objection, uh, but the butler answers, yes. And the lawyer, Brad Edwards, continues, that's a fair statement, right? Objection, butler, yes. So he's saying I'm an ATM machine because I got to pay these girls, regardless of the objections. Okay, and then came the deposition from Anthony Figueroa. And Anthony Figueroa, you got to follow this. He is a former boyfriend of Virginia Roberts Jufre. Remember, she's like at the heart of all of this. She's the one that came forward. Uh, she was a victim of Epstein and of Epstein's right-hand woman, Ghislaine Maxwell. So her former boyfriend, um, this is like really fascinating. He uh, is asked, when during that circumstances did you get paid? The boyfriend answers, I get paid before anything happens, period. I walk in the door to Jeffrey and then he hands me money, my money. I walk back to the kitchen, I say bye and leave. And then, like I said, at some point, this is where it gets a little tricky to understand, so we've got to stick with it. The syntax ain't perfect, but he goes this. Um, and seen her before when I was leave, walking the girl out the living room, out through the kitchen. A lot of the explanations have been like once the girl comes in, she goes through the kitchen and up the stairs to Jeffrey's massage rooms. So that sort of squares with a lot of the, the, the victim's descriptions of the Palm Beach house. In another part, the boyfriend's um, deposition is this. He's asked, would Jeffrey pay you every time? Yes. And how much would he pay you for each girl that you brought to him? $200 a piece. But in this final uh, deposition, this really raises some eyebrows. It's about who was seen at Epstein's home. Epstein's Palm Beach house manager, Juan Alessi, is under the, um, you know, under uh, oath now. And this is how he answers. He's questioned, did you ever overhear Mr. Epstein talking to any people that you would consider celebrities? The answer is, yes, I knew some, many celebrities. Who? What celebrities did you understand that he spoke with? Lawyer asks. And the answer is, well, I don't know who he spoke to because I never listened to his conversations, but I saw guests at the house that were celebrities. Lawyer says, well, who'd you see at the house? The answer is, many. It was blank. It was blank. It was Prince Andrew. It was Princess Sarah. Lawyer says, princess? And the uh, house manager says, Sarah, the wife of Andrew. Lawyer says, Ferguson? And, and then he answers, Ferguson. And it was a couple of misses. Mrs. Yugoslavia, Miss Germany, that I don't even know the names. But there were a lot of queens and other famous people that I can't remember. It was very famous lawyers that I'm sure you know. Alan Dershowitz, who spend at the house a couple times. And he slept there. Mic drop for just a hot minute and a record scratch because he's referring to Alan Dershowitz as in Epstein's lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, but he's saying he slept there at Epstein's Palm Beach house. My friends, I have had a couple of lawyers in my day and never has one of them slept over. I keep in touch with one of them. I sent her my Christmas card, but she's never slept over at my house and I would think it would be really weird. Yet Dershowitz has maintained over and over and just on Chris Cuomo's program, in fact, like a hot hour ago, uh, that, that the only reason he is ever in the documents over and over and over and over and over again was that he was Epstein's lawyer, period, full stop. But Juan Alessi, the Palm Beach house manager, says, yeah, a couple of times, Dershowitz slept there. Super interesting. Um, 
Look, I'll leave it to you, okay? So then I'm going to continue with the House manager's deposition for a second. Um, so he answers Princess Diane's secretary. She stayed there for a couple of weeks with her kids, and we took care of her. Who else? He's thinking to himself. Mr. Trump, that's a celebrity. Mr. Robert Kennedy Jr., Mr. Frederick Fakai. The lawyer says, who's that? And the house manager says, Fakai, Frederick Fakai, the famous hairstylist. Who else? I don't think I can remember anymore. Now, I got to stop down here because we have to add that just uh, two hours ago, Robert Kennedy Jr. put out a long statement regarding these documents. And he says that he never visited any of Epstein's homes and that he flew on Epstein's plane twice, along with his wife, Mary, and his kids. Once to catch a ride to Florida because his, he said that his wife, Mary, was a friend of Gillian Maxwell's and that Maxwell heard they were coming to Florida and she offered them a free ride. And RFK explains that um, at one point when they got to the airport in Palm Beach, Epstein's car met them, like the service, the car service, met them at the plane and then drove them to Epstein's mansion in Palm Beach, where RFK says he and Mary and the kids um, actually picked up another car and went straight to their home. So maybe that's why the house manager saw RFK at a home, but RFK has been pretty clear as to how that could have happened, and obviously that's pretty uncomfortable stuff. So um, here's the last deposition that um, is going to leave a pretty bad taste in your mouth. The victim in this case, uh, Virginia Giuffre, alleges that Epstein and Glenn Maxwell asked her to carry their baby for them. Glenn Maxwell, in her emails and her depositions, denied this vehemently. However, some new court documents dropped today. And wouldn't you know it, there is another victim who says the almost exact same thing happened to her. It's Joanna Schoberg. She's come up in the documents a couple times. And in her testimony, she's asked about what Maxwell and Epstein wanted. And here is her answer. Basically just said, I want you to be the mother of my baby. And the lawyer asks, and do you recall your response to that? And Joanna Schoberg says, um, I don't believe that I said flat out no. I, I didn't agree to it. I would just say, oh, yeah, really? Okay. This is where I need to take a breath and have a shower. Um, and to do that, I bring in my good friend, Josh Schiffer. Um, Josh is a criminal defense attorney. For these purposes, and more importantly, your practice represents a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. So you are just like a perfect guest. You're intimately involved in so much of the Epstein case. I think you knew a lot about this stuff just from your discovery process that we're all just kind of learning now. So just say this, just help me. Some of the stuff that came out in the 1400 pages today we knew, Josh, some we didn't, but a lot of it seems to square with what the victims have said all along. Yeah, exactly. And when we'd actually spoken last week, we discussed how a lot of these names we're going to know, but what we're really going to get is the context. These depositions for people that have never been in one, it's really a free for all of cross-examination where the other side's going to object, but the person's going to answer every time. That's how you develop evidence in cases. And that's why we're really getting these raw, unfiltered stories from the actual victims. And what they're doing is confirming all of the salacious details that we've all heard, we've talked about, we've believed are true. Now we're getting to actually see them in writing contemporaneously from a lawsuit with prominent lawyers involved. This is powerful stuff. This is the actual records, the primary resources that make the record for history. And what is it showing? 
that everything we believed about this island of sin, about the Lolita uh, uh, Express, really does appear to be true. There was this grand group okay, of Josh. people. Oh, so I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. Um, but I do want to ask you about the guy in the picture between us. That's, um, you know, that's Alan Dershowitz. And he has gone on, like, he has gone on every show that he can to say, of course I'm in the documents. I'm Epstein's lawyer. So, yeah, I'm everywhere. But today, the house manager says he slept over. And he says that, he says a couple of times right before that. So what am I to make of a lawyer that sleeps over? I, I got two positions on this because I have a bunch of really wealthy clients who have invited me to their mansions. And when you are operating in that universe, you have a giant house for a reason. And when you're a lawyer, you're kind of a help. But at the same time, I've never slept over at a client who is being accused of the kinds of things Jeffrey Epstein was convicted of and then charged with again when he hung himself. That's the kind of association wow. that I don't think respectable lawyers would avail themselves of because it's going to rub off on you. So I find that sleepover, I'd love to know a little bit more of the dates. Uh, it's not an absolute smoking gun to me, but it sure doesn't smell good. You know, I'm, thank you for saying that. I want to, uh, in all um, you know, fairness to Dershowitz, I don't know the date that that uh, house manager in his deposition was making that claim because it doesn't exist anywhere. He just made the claim. And, you know, lots of people knew and hung out with Epstein when he was just this really magnanimous, benevolent guy that gave billions and, well, said he'd give a bunch of money to charity. He didn't. Um, but um, we don't know if he was allied as a lawyer um, in the time that we're referring to him being sleeping over, uh, whether he was, you know, representing a, a pedophile. I have to leave it there, but you're going to come back in the next block, right? Because I've got a Bill Clinton thing I need you to talk to me about. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay, well, there's a tease for you, too. All right, um, Josh Schiffer, thank you for that. He's coming right back. In the meantime, I want to talk about that name uh, that a lot of those other names have in common, besides Epstein, of course, and that name is Lolita, as in Lolita Express which was Epstein's notorious private jet. Like, luxurious, but I would look at it now as greasy and disgusting. At the height of its notoriety, it flew Epstein and all of his VIP pals to and from New York and Palm Beach and little St. James and the Caribbean, uh, the Caribbean um, and, you know, all over the world, often accompanied by a whole bunch of underage, pretty, pretty girls, scantily clad to keep them company. In sordid and highly illegal ways, those girls were on board. Here's one of the underage victims, Virginia Giuffre, back in 2019 on 60 Minutes Australia. Take a look. Everything that happened on the Lilia Express and his other planes was the same thing that happened in his bedrooms and the massage rooms on the beach, wherever we were. The abuse did not stop because we're in the air. 95% of the time, it was, there was always sex involved. Jeffrey couldn't take a two-hour flight without having to ejaculate. Like, that's how sick this man was. Remember I told you, um, like, disclaimer off the top of the show? That's, that's why. And it turns out that Epstein and his faithful enabler, Ghislaine Maxwell, were not the only ones who took a hard fall from great heights because that old plane, the Boeing 727, was built in the 70s, has fallen on hard times itself. It has not been off the ground since 2016. Just look closely. Can you see all the dirt? Like, it's literally filthy, and you can see dirt oozing down the top of the fuselage to the bottom. And the tail wing, just grime. Look at that. 
As we speak, that awful relic sits rotting and rusting and partially dismantled on a tarmac in coastal Georgia. And it is doomed to be sold for scrap, not for luxury and not for flying. All of this is according to the Daily Mail, which got an amazing exclusive. They've got photos inside. Look at this. Inside the plane. Um, and you just can't unsee some of the stuff that we're going to show you here. Uh, mirrored walls and ceilings and doors that are now really just clouded over. The circular couches in the center there, dirty. And then look through, you can see the red garish, like velour-y couches in the other room there. They're all fading and they're moldy. Actually, mold has completely taken over that plane. Um, you can especially witness it in the shelving. This picture's tricky because we've got a Daily Mail bug on the spot where the mold is most evident. I'm not sure if our control room can just pop that bug off or move it for a second. Uh, it's still hard to see. Oh, man. There's a lot of mold spots. You can just see to the right of the Daily Mail bug that you can see the, the black spots, but they're really thick and heavy. And just look below that. There's the, um, there's the baby lotion. That's in the bathroom of the jet. Ugh. The rear cabin has that awful queen-size bed, and it has a padded floor. What you can't see is just below the bed are these um, drawers, and inside the drawers are multiple sets of bedding. Multiple sets. Why would you need multiple? Unless you've got to change it all the time. They are folded and stuffed inside these drawers. They're all still there. Um, just the idea of that, so incredibly unsettling that the bedding is just still there. There are bath towels monogrammed with J.E. for Jeffrey Epstein. I told you about baby lotion in the wood-paneled bathroom. In its prime, that luxurious private jet could carry 29 passengers, even with all the fancy you know, seating. And we know from previously released flight logs that Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and Britain's Prince Andrew were frequently among the passengers on board. And so was lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who we have mentioned already. Uh, there are a couple other big names on that plane. Former Senator George Mitchell, former National, um, National Security Advisor Sandy Berger. Uh, Clinton, in fact, is listed as a passenger 26 times. Donald Trump is listed as a passenger at least seven times. And on one trip in 1994, Donald Trump actually brought Marla Maples, who was his wife between Ivana and uh, his current wife. Guess who else was on? Look close. It was Tiffany Trump, baby Tiffany, their infant daughter together. And now you just kind of think about baby Tiffany on board that plane. I don't think anything ugly happened when Donald Trump and Marla and Tiffany were on that flight, but just the idea that that baby was... Don't know where they sat her, and I hope it wasn't on those couches. I want to bring in Christopher Okendo, the photographer who recently boarded the Lolita Express himself and snapped these pictures. Wow, what a get. Uh, congratulations on, on getting that story. i got to be honest. I think a photographer's job is to bring about emotion with your images. And I mean this in the most uh, complimentary way. It, your pictures made me want to vomit. <laughs> so you did the good job um, in bringing about the emotion of what that plane was like. I want to know what it was like being on it. Um, it, was, um, it was a little overwhelming, for sure. You know, it felt oppressive. Uh, knowing the things that had happened on that plane, um, it weighed heavy on me as I was taking those photographs. I knew I was photographing uh, a historic document, um, a historic artifact. And I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to that plane, but I felt that um, this may be the un one opportunity and an only opportunity to, to look inside of this aircraft. 
Um, I think probably besides maybe the FBI or some other law enforcement agencies, um, very few people have been on that plane since it's been under investigation. So that leads me to ask you, like, you were literally walking, you know, through a crime scene. It's no longer a crime scene, but it was a crime scene for the FBI for a long time. Did you get that sense that you could imagine these same images? Like, there's Ghislaine, uh, you know, massaging Jeffrey's feet. It might not be the same plane, but did you get the sense that I recognize these crime scene locations in this plane? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely felt like I was walking through a crime scene, you know, and... Um, you know, everywhere I, I look, the bed, you know, uh, the kitchen, the, the chairs, the lounge areas, uh, I can only imagine the conversations that were had, the people that were on that plane, um, some of the, the things that might have happened on that plane, it, it, it definitely weighed on me. But I tried to, you know, document the plane as best I could and, um, and just try to show it so that way people could see it and um, get a sense of, of what it was like to be on that plane. I bet, uh, just, you know, I'm going to throw it out there. I'll bet that the passengers he brought on board, all these VIPs, were super wowed and impressed when they walked on and saw this at one time fancy private jet. What was the feeling and the smell um, when you got on board? Because it looks to me, with all that mold that, you know, I can see spotted in the bathroom, uh, that it would be really stuffy and awful. Yeah, it it was stuffy. And sitting on the tarmac, it was really hot. And uh, so as soon as you go on the plane, you're, you know, hit with the, the, the heat of just sitting on that plane. And uh, the furniture, you know, it, it was heavy. The, all the furniture and the interior design style of that plane was heavy and oppressive. And I, I think it was probably meant to, to probably overwhelm the people that were on that plane because it, it, it doesn't feel very comforting. You know, it's uh, the color scheme doesn't feel very warm and inviting. The furniture is really heavy. And um, I, I think the sense that he was trying to, you know, you almost feel like you're trapped on that plane. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that it's like mm. a, a welcoming feeling quick, being on that jet. You know, you know Christopher, quick question about the picture that's up there now. I only have 20 seconds left, but I see something coming down from the ceiling and there's been tons of reporting about that plane being wired with cameras to capture all the action. Did you see evidence of what could have been like electronic wiring for, for cameras, secret cameras to, to catch people in dirty acts? Absolutely. I mean, there were mirrors throughout the entire plane, uh, and I would not be surprised. You know, I wanted to get behind that paneling and, and look and see if, if there were any kind of recording devices or, you know, ways for people to, to eavesdrop. Uh, but I, I would not be surprised, you know. Um, you know, it was moldy. You know, it, it didn't feel like it, it had been preserved very well. Um, it, it had a, a, a dirty feel to it. And, um, yeah, even looking into the cabinets, it just, there was mold everywhere. It was dirty. And, and there was still the, mm, the, the linen, gosh. the napkin. And um, it was, you know, felt important being there for sure. You know, I'm going to have you back. Um, I have more questions I have for you. And I'm not finished reporting on this plane because there's more to see as well. Christopher Okendo, great scoop. Congratulations on that. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really great scoop of the Daily Mail. Okay, so um, speaking of this, he flew on Jeffrey Epstein's plane about 26 times and was even photographed on it. But keep in mind, many of the occasions they were together were decades before anybody knew just how bad Jeffrey Epstein really was. 
After the break, I'm talking about President Bill Clinton. Uh, he just got a huge reprieve from an allegation revealed in the new documents yesterday. We are going to tell you who Bill Clinton was mistaken for. And here's a hint. Some gray-haired men apparently really do look alike. Mystery Salt, next, after the break. Clinton was mentioned in the Epstein document, Epstein, Epstein, <laughs> mentioned like 29 times. But tonight, a little clarity about a big allegation that um, was unearthed in yesterday's document drop. An email from an Epstein victim claimed that the former president, Bill Clinton, went to the offices of Vanity Fair personally to squash the reporting on dirty, dirty Jeffrey Epstein. Today, however, that has come like total 180. The Vanity Fair reporter who covered that victim and her story says that it was Epstein who went to the Vanity Fair office to stifle the reporting, not President Clinton. The reporter says that this was an innocent mistake of the victim, probably, that she had probably mistaken Clinton for Epstein, both gray-haired. Big mistake. And one that clears the former president of that allegation. So I want to get Josh Schiffer back in. He's a criminal defense attorney, and as I mentioned before, his practice represents um, a Jeffrey Epstein victim. You know, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of this, like, oh, my God, look at these names, and then clarity. Like, like RFK... Oh, he was seen by the, you know, the house manager. And then he's like, yeah, because my family with my kids ended up grabbing a ride and like accidentally got, you know, ferried past his house. And, and that's big. I mean, it's really big to be allied with this guy. Absolutely. And it shows exactly how ingratiated Jeffrey Epstein was at the top echelons of high society in the United States. You've got Clintons, you've got Trumps, you've got Kennedys. Who else do you need? We've got Weinsteins. We've got princes and princesses. That is just absolutely amazing to know how many people were in the Venn diagram of Jeffrey Epstein's life. And now that we're hearing these confirmations of the context, I'm believing a lot more about what was rumored and never proven really was true. And that's, I think, what we're going to continue being able to do as more and more of this information comes out. Yeah. Okay. So like, just again, if anyone's reading the bottom thing, reporter Epstein tried to kill Vanity Fair story and the other banner, uh, you know, should be, and it wasn't Bill Clinton because that was all the headlines yesterday. Uh, but now, you know, clarity from the reporter herself. Nope. That was a mistake from the victim. And, and it was probably an innocent mistake because they, they looked alike or she just mixed it up. But Josh, thank you. Josh Schiffer, as always, we'll have you back early and often. Thank you so much. Have a great night, everybody. All right, you too, and have a great weekend. Okay, coming up next, they took a lie detector test, and they insisted that they did it. They wanted to clear their names and quiet their accusers for good. George and Cindy Anthony, parents of Casey Anthony, grandparents of Kaylee. Casey accused them of knowing more about Kaylee's death, but tonight, the polygraph results are in, and I have them right here. Did the lie detector catch George and Cindy being deceitful or truthful, or prove them to be victimized by Casey as well? FBI agent who hooked them up is live with me next. We have been talking at length this week about uh, an attempt by George and Cindy Anthony to clear the air and their names when it comes to that horrible death of their granddaughter, Kaylee, 15 plus years ago. As you know, 
Kaylee's mom, Casey, was acquitted of that murder. Um, uh, and she continues to accuse her parents of knowing more than they ever let on. She even claims that her father's a sexual abuser. And even though it is well established that most of what comes out of Casey Anthony's mouth is a fictional, glaring, filthy lie, George and Cindy took a risky step, and they allowed one of the country's leading polygraph experts to hook them both up to lie detectors and said, fire away. And that's exactly what happened on a program that just aired on A&E. And spoilers here, if you haven't seen it, uh, we've got the results. Um, and here they are. Take a look. George. You took two examinations, George. Yes. Uh, the scope of one of your exams had to do with whether or not you were involved in child molestation with your daughter, Casey, and uh, as well with uh, your granddaughter, Kaylee. Your exam contained three relevant questions. Did you ever have sexual contact with Casey? You answered no. No. Did you ever touch Casey for sexual gratification? You answered no. And as an adult, have you ever had sexual contact with a minor, which would include any minor? And you answered no. Okay. Your results are you passed this test, George, with no deception indicated to all of the relevant questions. In my professional opinion, you were truthful. No doubt. I would never have stood for it, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> George, you took a second exam as well. The scope of the other exam is to determine whether or not you had any involvement in Kaylee's death or and or disappearance. Did you actively cause Kaylee's disappearance? No. Did you knowingly conceal Kaylee's whereabouts? No. Did you place Kaylee's body in the ground? No. The results of that examination, George. You passed that exam. And I saw no deception indicated to all of the relevant questions. In my professional opinion, you were truthful. I've always believed you. So emotional. And by the way, the results for Cindy, exactly the same. She's not lying and she's not hiding anything about Kaylee's death. I want to bring in George Olivo. He is the career FBI special agent and polygraph expert that you just saw. He administered those tests to George and Cindy. Can I ask you, George, was that incredible relief that I saw, was it relief because the, the, the tests, you know, went their way? Or was it just devastation that they had to do it? I think it was a, a, a huge weight off of their shoulders. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's being exonerated for the first time by, you know, by, by a third party. Third, third party validation, I think, for them um, in, in a way that uh, they have not experienced before yeah i think they deserved this um but they deserve so much better that what they've gone through and what the masses have done to them um i want to show something because george you went out on a limb kind of like just basically putting it out there that casey is is a liar i want to play the clip and then ask you about it on the other side take a look sure. 
We're never going to know everything that happened in that family. When I learned of Casey's allegations, I watched her, her uh, documentary, and she, to me, did not, did not come across as credible. There was a lot of other things about her, about her demeanor that suggest that perhaps the truth was not on her side. But I, I probably shouldn't comment any more on that without talking to her face to face. Okay, so there's the question, George. Um, what, what was it that t- tells you that she's lying, and, and would you like to hook her up to the lie detector? Well, uh, to answer the first question, um, I, I, first of all, again, I've never met Casey Anthony, uh, but there's one major indicator of deception, one of the key major indicators of deception is an idea uh, of convey, convincing versus conveying, convince versus convey. So if I tell you a story and I'm constantly trying to convince you of the facts of that story versus just convey the truth as I know it, then then there's an issue there. There's a reason for that. So it really boils down to selling versus telling. And as I recall, Casey seemed to be doing uh, uh, a lot of selling of her story to the audience versus just telling the facts as she knew them as true. Uh, That, to me, just kind of put her over the top. In my mind, but keep in mind, I didn't I didn't analyze her her video before I, I went out to uh, meet George and Cindy. I didn't want that to uh, create a bias in my mind one way or the other. This is I just watched her video in, just to get a clear understanding of her allegations in preparation for the exams that I did. Well, it was it was great to watch this. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for being on with us twice this week. And I'm going to invite you back, and you have to say yes. How's that? <laughs> sure, be happy to. George Olivos, thank you so much. And still to come, we all know about the epic rock star lifestyle. Uh, It ain't called sex, drugs, and rock and roll for nothing, right? But there is a real twist in the legal saga between Cher and the 47-year-old son that she had with classic rock star Greg Allman. Cher says her son has been missing and may be in grave danger from drug abuse, and she wants a judge to step in. But guess who breezed into the courtroom this morning, acting like nothing was wrong? Talk about rock star drama. We'll tell you what's really going on here and how the judge weighed in next. Well, I don't know while that's true, because you got me, baby, I got you. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. It was such a sweet little ballad in Sonny and Cher's heyday, but now it's the unofficial theme song of Cher's growing legal battle with her son by late Greg Allman. Uh, That son is Elijah Blue. And yesterday, Cher filed court documents seeking at least temporary conservatorship over Elijah, who's now 47 years old. She's claiming that he'd been missing, uh, maybe even dangerously strung out on drugs. And she said if the court didn't give her immediate control of Elijah's life and finances, he would probably end up dead. Those finances aren't huge by share standards, but they're not for nothing, right? Allman set up a trust fund like years ago before he died that pays Elijah $10,000 every month. And according to reports, Share hired four men to forcibly remove Elijah from a New York hotel in November of 2022. Um, Some said it was an intervention. Others said it was kidnapping. But Cher was never charged with anything, and she denies that even happened. But this morning, during a hearing on this conservatorship request, 
Elijah Blue suddenly walks in, supposedly, into court, shocking kind of everybody. Total Perry Mason thing. Um, he reportedly looked tanned and healthy, and he told the judge that he's been sober for three months. And guess what? His wife um, and a brand new lawyer were with him. And Cher seemingly lost this round. The judge declined to appoint anyone as Elijah's conservator, but the judge did continue this case to January 29th. And I got the perfect guest to talk about all of this because Diane Diamond is an award-winning investigative journalist who happens to have written the book on the topic. It's called mm -hmm. We're Here to Help When Guardianship Goes Wrong. Man, you're the perfect guest. What's your read, Diane, on this whole Cher versus Elijah Blue? Well, I think you're right. Cher lost in court today, Ashley. But, you know, if what she's saying about Elijah Blue is true, that he is a, a decades-long or years-long drug addict, then in the end, maybe he lost because maybe he really does need some outside intervention, like a conservatorship or a guardianship. But, you know, bad choices for a 47-year-old man are not unusual. How bad do the choices have to be in order for a judge to say, I'm basically taking your life away from you and giving it either to your mom or to a court-appointed company that does this for a living? Well, that might still happen. You know, the reason that this was put off until the end of the month is that Cher's side didn't give Elijah Blue's side enough advanced warning. So, um, that, mm. okay, I understand that delay, but... You know, that's several weeks. And in the life of a drug addict and, you know, once an addict, always an addict, this could be a very determinative few weeks for him. What if he falls off the wagon again? He says he's sober now for three months, but in the scheme of things, three months is not very long. I read your Substack on this, and it was so insightful, Diane, because a lot of people don't understand. You can't just walk in as a loving mother and say, I need to rescue my son, give him to me, let me control, um, because you might not get that. The, the court, as you explained it, might give it to some stranger. I got like 30 seconds left. What are the chances that Cher's not going to get the conservatorship and some stranger with a business mind is going to get it? In the state of California, the chances are very good. And once there's court control of a person, they lose their civil rights, all their assets, all their freedoms. And Cher thinks she might be, you know, rescuing her son. But if someone else is named as a conservator, then they get all the say on Elijah Blue's life. Cher will be off to the side. And I'm not sure she realizes that. I'm just going to tell everybody again, your book is called We're Here to Help When Guardianship Goes Wrong. It's so helpful to read that book and also your substack to understand there's so many different nuances. And Diane, I'll have you back when there's not Jeffrey Epstein breaking news when I lose all my time. Thanks for being on tonight and happy Friday. You bet, you bet. Thanks a lot. All right, folks, that's all I got. Have a great weekend. Stay tuned. Cuomo's coming up next. is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. And our campaign is about preserving and strengthening our American democracy. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo, and that, of course, is President Biden just hours ago going after former President Donald Trump for his role on January 6th and as a problem in America. This going on just as the Supreme Court agrees to hear Trump's appeal of Colorado.